Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week we pick a starting point and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to unearth a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are, well, useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is episode 12. Bob. So, you know, I was talking to my mum the other day and she was raving about Bob Mortimer's autobiography. I wondered what all the racket was about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Dad has read it too and this Blimey. yeah this feat my parents both reading a book yeah is testament to the book's brilliance i was going to say it's unheard of isn't it yeah i always like bob mortimer he just has funny bones which makes it all the more surprising that for 30 years did you know he suffered from crippling shyness did he mum was telling me yeah he talks about it in his book well he's certainly uh, compensating for that now isn't yeah he? yeah anyway we were chatting about bob and uh, I was reminded of another of my favourite incongruous celebrity stories, you know, like Gino DeCampo burgling Paul Young's house and doing time for it. Of course. Uh, yeah, I like an incongruous celebrity story. Who doesn't? Well, I, I think I'm pretty sure you know this one, but for those who don't, you know, um, the time of the Brit Awards in 1996. Ah, who could forget? 1996, 26 years ago. Good grief. Anyway, the huge story was Jarvis Cocker jumping up on the stage when Michael Jackson was performing Earth Song. I remember only too well. And wiggling his bum around. <laughs> and um, In a way that only Jarvis can yeah, do. Yes, he does it so well. And when Jarvis was arrested and carted <laughs> off to the police station, Bob Mortimer went with him and sort of represented him in his capacity as a solicitor, which he used to be before finding fame as one half of a comedy double act. Yes. I read a really good article, actually, about the whole event. At that time, record labels took it in turns to organise the Brit Awards. Oh, right. Yeah, and that year it was Sony's turn. And lots of people thought it was essentially a Jacko event because he was their artist. Right. You know, masquerading as an awards show. So there was growing unrest as the show went on and it became more apparent. It was being hijacked by Jacko. And the turning point was his messianic performance whereby he was lofted into the air by a cherry picker to anoint and save the poor people in rags below. <laughs> yeah, he didn't suffer from shyness, did he, old Jacko? Certainly not on that performance. No, he certainly didn't. And um, apparently Jarvis was goaded on. He was sitting um, at the Island Records table. I think they had three tables there. OK. And uh, he was goaded on by Candida Doyle, who was the um, keyboardist with Pulp. OK. And so up he went. And apparently Tricky <laughs> got up and followed him. And then... Then he was followed by Mushroom from Massive Attack, but they got stopped by bouncers. <laughs> so it could have been quite the affair had they have got up onto the stage as well. Anyway, Jarvis did the bum waving and was quickly chased off by Jacko's dancers come bodyguards. His fleeing was described as geography teacher cutting through the assembly hall. <laughs> <laughs> you could just picture it, yeah. can't you? And then, of course, bedlam ensued. Um, there was an allegation um, that he'd injured one of the child dancers as he fled the stage. Oh, yes. 
Um, so that's why the police got involved. And Mark Marot was Ireland's managing director at the time and he said he got backstage in time to see Cocker being put into a police van and carted off. And he said, we went back into the auditorium to try and find a sober lawyer, which was really difficult by that point. <laughs> He says, and they managed to locate John Statham, a lawyer who volunteered to help, and also Bob Mortimer, as he and Vic Reeves had been on one of Ireland's tables that year too. Right. And with the caveat that he was a qualified conveyancing lawyer, Mortimer said he'd come along and try and help. So Mark Marrott says, the four of us went to Kensington Police Station and Nick Angel, who was head of talent at Ireland, was a bit pissed and Bob Mortimer was a bit pissed too. And at one point, the duty officer said to me, if your friends don't back off, I'm going to put them in the f cell too. <laughs> and apparently outside the station, Vic Reeves held up a sign saying, free the Jarvis one. <laughs> Good old Vic. Yeah, and as Bob Mortimer himself recalls, he entered Cocker's holding room and asked what had happened, wherein he received the ridiculously funny response of, I showed my bottom to Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, for Cocker's sake, Mortimer had enough wherewithal about him to point out that the legality of upsetting Michael Jackson was not yet stated in statutory law, whether he was dressed as Christ and delivering a musical sermon or otherwise, which is brilliant. I think that for me is one of the best celebrity stories out there. It's a corker. Right, well staying on the subject of the Brits. Oh yes. Did you know that the word Brits is actually a backronym? A backronym? A backronym. Please tell me what a backronym uh, is. I was about to ask you, I didn't know what a backronym was either until I read about it. Well, I'll tell you, a backronym is an acronym formed from an already existing word by expanding its letters into the words of a phrase. Okay. So the name the Brits was originally a shortened form of British. Oh, Britain okay. or Britannia. Right. And in the early days, the awards, you may remember, were sponsored by Britannia Music Club. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, but subsequently became a backronym for British Record Industry Trusts Show. Oh, that's really interesting. So it's an it's a sort of a, a latterly produced acronym. So yes. the word came first, and then the little words for each letter were added later. It's like yeah, it's like a retrospective yes. acronym. Yeah. Oh. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, and a, another example of a backronym mm. is the distress signal SOS, right? Which is often believed to be an abbreviation for Save Our Souls or yeah. save our ship, yeah. but was chosen for its simple and unmistakable Morse code representation, which of course is ah, dot, okay. dot, dot, dash, 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 dot, dot, dot. So nothing to do with save our souls, nothing to do with what the letters represent, it's just the Morse code. That's right, the phrase save our souls or save our ship came after. Oh, how interesting. Well, I thought so, yeah. and I'm glad you agree. And another example of a backronym as a mnemonic is the APGAR score. Now, do you know what the APGAR score is? Oh, is that for babies? Is that that's, for newborn babies? That's right. It's used yeah. to assess the health of newborn babies. The rating system was devised by and named after Virginia APGAR. But 10 years after the initial publication, the backronym APGAR was coined in the US as a mnemonic learning aid. And it stands for Appearance, Pulse, Grimace, activity and respiration. Well, isn't that lucky that the letters of her surname her... fitted the things, the signs that you look out for? She had one heck of a convenient surname, didn't yeah. she, old Virginia Apgar? Mm. 
Anyway, going back to the subject of the Brits, I then took a look at other notable Brits moments. I'm sure you can of, remember yes, some of Yes, of which yourself. there are quite a few, aren't there? Yes, of course. The first one that came to my mind was uh, the Sam Fox and Mick Fleetwood debacle. The absolute disaster, yeah, car they, crash yeah, that was. Yeah, they, they had a terrible time, didn't they? That was 1989. And also Andy Bell and Boy George Embrace. They had a kiss. Oh, do I remember that? Which received rapturous applause. Um, and did you know that in 1990, Freddie Mercury, he made his final public appearance at the Brits. Oh, right, okay. Queen appeared at the ceremony to receive the Brit Award for Outstanding Contribution to Music, but apparently he didn't speak. Brian May spoke and um, he looked quite gaunt and poorly, bless him. Yeah. Um, and then the KLF in 1992, oh, do you remember that? Oh, yeah, that was very controversial. Yeah, they opened the show and invited extreme metal band Extreme Noise Terror on stage, complete with flamethrowers, and fired machine gun blanks over the crowd. <laughs> they then sent a dead sheep to the after-show party and later buried their Brit Award statuette at Stonehenge, signifying their abhorrence of the music industry. Um, and of course, there was the Chumbawamba and John Prescott. Do you remember that? In 1998. Now, did they throw something over him or something? Yeah, in 1998. Dan Burt No Bacon. <laughs> Real name? Nigel Hunter. <laughs> of uh, Chumbawamba. He, he threw a bucket of iced water over then Deputy Prime Minister John Prescott. Oh yes, I remember. Despite apologies on behalf of the band from EMI Europe, Chumbawamba were unrepentant, saying, if John Prescott has the nerve to turn up at events like the Brit Awards in a vain attempt to make Labour seem cool and trendy, then he deserves all we can throw at him. Well, that was risky because John Prescott used to be able to look after himself. Do you remember he, yeah. uh, he, he clouted that guy in Wales, I think it I, was, wasn't I he? Didn't he get it. egged or something? And he, yeah. he gave him a right Punched old uh, left hook, didn't he? He did. Talking of Chumbawamba, another member of the band has an interesting name, Alice Nutter. Alice Nutter. Yeah, Alice Nutter. Now, in 1998, Nutter appeared on the American political talk show Politically Incorrect and advised fans of their music who could not afford to buy their CDs to steal them from large chains such as HMV and Virgin. Oh. Um, and this prompted Virgin to remove the album from the shelves and start selling it from behind the counter. Oh, well, there you go. Quite the rebel. And with her music and politics closely integrated, Nutter picketed during the 1984 to 85 minor strike. Oh, wow. And okay. the whopping dispute of 1986. Ooh. Um, and she is the one who sings on their hit Tub Thumping. Oh, Danny boy. Well, that bit. That bit. Exactly Ooh. right. Yeah. And she actually changed her name by deed poll to Alice Nutter, feeling an affinity to the woman accused and hanged as a result of the 17th century Pendle witch hunt. Now, do you know much about the Pendle witches? I, I don't. Well, I don't know the details. I mean, I know obviously there were loads of... That was rife, wasn't it? It was rife. It was all... It 17th was all, century. It was all the rage back then, wasn't it? Yeah, the trials of the Pendle witches in 1612 are among the most famous witch trials in English history mm. and some of the best recorded of the 17th century. Many of the allegations made in the Pendle witch trials resulted from members of two families, the Demdike and the Chattox families, making accusations against each other. And historian John Swain has said that the outbreaks of witchcraft in and around Pendle demonstrate 
the extent to which people could make a living by either posing as a witch or by accusing or threatening to accuse others of being a witch. Oh yes, because there was a lot of healing going on, wasn't there, in those days. So if you were healing people, you know, sort of natural remedies and all of that, and so you were... That was not uh, looked on particularly kindly. Mm. Yeah, and the 12 accused in these trials lived in the same area surrounding Pendle Hill in Lancashire and were charged with the murders of 10 people by the use of witchcraft. Mm. And one of the accused died in prison. And of the 11 who went to trial, nine women and two men, 10 were found guilty and executed by hanging. Alice Nutter being okay. among them. And one was found not guilty. Oh, lucky her. Lucky her indeed. Most of them were hanged at Gallows Hill in Lancaster, but one of them was hanged at Knavesmire, which is the present site of York Racecourse. Oh, all these people having a lovely jolly day out and that's where people got hanged. Yeah, wow. how, about, how about that? And do you know who else was hanged there? Ooh, um... A, a famous hangy. <laughs> no, I don't know. Dick Turpin, no less. Oh, Dick Turpin. Yeah. Now, you will know that he is described as a highwayman and his exploits have been very much romanticised. Yes, but he, he's not, he wasn't actually a very nice person, was he? Because I remember reading a few articles about him last year. He was quite the rogue. No, he wasn't very nice at all. Um, he was in a gang called the Essex Gang mm. who would burgle houses... Um, and there were supposedly beatings and rape were involved. Yeah. So not the dandy highwayman at all, yeah. a, a right ro nasty rogue yeah, by the sound of it. Yeah, he was. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how as the centuries have rolled on, he's been painted to be this... Yeah, eulogised as a hero, yeah. yeah. He is also supposed to have accidentally shot and killed his fellow highwayman by the name of Matthew King. OK. And Turpin quickly fled the scene. Poor old Matthew King took a week to die and called Turpin a coward. And this is according to Richard Bays, who was the landlord of the Green Man pub in Leytonstone, no less, in East London, and was there the night of the shooting. OK. Um, Turpin was eventually caught after he got a bit drunk and impulsively shot another man's gamecock. Yes, yes, I remember reading that. After all the... It's like getting old Al Capone on tax evasion. After all the things he did, and then they eventually got him by just being a... a a bit drunk and, um, yeah, shooting a gamecock. <laughs> Is it wrong to find that amusing? Anyway, Turpin was living under an alias, calling himself John Palmer at the time, but got right. caught out when he wrote a letter to his brother-in-law while in prison. The letter was intercepted and by chance his old schoolmaster saw it and recognised the handwriting to be that of Dick Turpin. Wow, that is... What are the chances of that? His old schoolmaster reading it and, and recognising the handwriting. I know, it seems... bad bit, luck. It's bad luck or unbelievable or mm. one of the two. And on the day of his hanging, Turpin hired five mourners and even bought a new coat and shoes for the event. Yeah, he, he had quite the ego, didn't he? Imagine paying five people to come to your funeral and cry and weep and wail and moan. I've gone right off Dick Turpin. Yeah. I'm glad we've been talking about Dick Turpin, actually, because it means that I get to move on to one of my specialist subjects. Oh, yeah, what's that then? Well, the controversial character has been portrayed in many films and TV shows, including one of my favourite genres of film, the Carry On film. Oh, yes. Carry On Dick, 1974. Of course, yes. During the old uh, lockdown there, you got the entire series of Carry On films and we watched 
pretty much the whole yeah. damn lot, didn't we? I loved it. And I think it's about time to uh, start start <laughs> back at the beginning and go through them all again. Yeah. And then we'd have a lengthy uh, discussion on the merits and the non-merits of each uh, film. I miss those days. Great days indeed. <laughs> Well, Carry On Dick, um, did you know, marked the end of an era for the series of films. It featured the last appearances of Sid James. Oh, right. OK. Yeah, he'd, he'd done 19 appearances in the series. OK. Hattie Jakes. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah, who'd done 14 appearances. And Barbara Windsor who'd been in nine. Wow, okay. So, so, so this was really the end of the era, as you say. Very much, yeah. Some big hitters going out there. Sid James, of course, played Dick Turpin, who is terrorising the village of Upper Denture. Oh, very good. And the screenplay was written by uh, Talbot Rothwell. Talbot Rothwell. Yeah, who wrote screenplays for several Carry On films, including Carry On Cleo, and in April 2007, Rothwell's line, Infamy, infamy, they've all got it infamy. Classic. Remember it, delivered by Kenneth Williams in Carry On Cleo. That was voted the greatest one-liner in movie history by a thousand comedy writers, actors, impresarios and members of the public for the launch of Sky Movie's Comedy Channel. I think it's a deserved winner. Yeah, but actually Rothwell borrowed the line with permission oh. from Frank Muir and Dennis Norden. Oh, Frank Muir. Yeah, they had used it on their radio show, Take It From Here, in the 1950s. And they'd used the line and thought it had been forgotten about. So we're only too happy when Rothwell called Dennis Norden to ask him if he could use it. Well, that is an absolute golden fact. You remember Carry On Cleo, don't you, with old Amanda Barry in... Uh, Absolutely, I remember it with great fondness. Yes, in her bath of milk. Um, but do you remember the slave auction scene with yes. um, Warren Mitchell, actually? He's the... Yes, Warren Mitchell who went on to play Alf Garnet, yeah. That's right, yeah. And um, the slave auction takes place at Marcus Expensius. <laughs> And um, Warren Mitchell's character is, is Spencius um, and his brother is Marcus. They just loved cramming in the gags on the old carry-on films, didn't they? Yeah, well, I've got a great little story about that scene. Um, the owners of the British department store, Marks and Spencer, yeah. were alerted to a send-up of their store's name, Marcus and Spencius, and associated use of the store's colours, green and gold, and they called their lawyers. Legal action was averted when it was explained that no slight against the store was intended and the owners settled for an apology and a letter of explanation to be sent to a leading newspaper. Good grief, they really did not have a sense of humour about it at all then. Yeah, well this idea was later dropped however and the incident forgotten. Oh, that's big of a minute. But an alternate explanation also exists for the oh. Marks and Spencer send-up. Okay. Um, and this one I slightly prefer. OK. It was that Marks and Spencer were in on the gag from the beginning, ah, sort of. Right. Star Sid James had run up quite a bit of a gambling debt and happened to mention it at a party to somebody who was quite high up in the company. A bet was apparently made that if the next carry-on film could name-drop the company into a script, then he would clear the debt. Wow. And Sid apparently pleaded with the producer to either raise his pay or at least put a gag in about the company somewhere to honour the deal. Aware that Sid was a big part of the movie, the producer Peter Rogers asked scriptwriter Talbot Rothwell to see what he could do. Rothwell rewrote the scene of the slave auction to include the Marcus Etspensius joke and it was filmed as such. 
although the board of Marks and Spencer were not aware of this and had objected to not being informed, the executive involved admitted he had said it partly as a joke and was surprised it had been taken seriously. And the matter was supposedly cleared up before the film was released when the chief executive and some of the board were invited to a private screening in London alongside Rank and Odeon executives and they loved the film. That is a great story and I really hope it's the uh, it's the true one. Yeah. And Sid would get into trouble several years later for promising product placement in another one of his films, <laughs> Carry On Again Doctor, 1968, and was probably the only member of the Carry On team who was considered so indispensable that it was tolerated. We'll have to watch Carry On Again Doctor and see if we can work out what the product placement is. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe, that way you'll never miss an episode. A massive thanks to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his brilliant album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting us. Remember to join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note, all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity.